Now I have a message on my heart today, <clears throat> which is somewhat of a different message, and I, um, I have a desire to cooperate with the Lord because I felt like there was something that the Holy Spirit wants to break off some people. Some people have been taken captive by a single thought here or there, and I think the Lord wants to help people break free from some of that. I'm gonna try in today's message to help us wrap our hearts around the truth and understanding that it will hopefully serve us as a protection and as wisdom points for us. As a church, as God's people, we live in this world in a set of paradoxes. A paradox is an apparent contradiction uh, where both things are true, right? They seemly con contradict, but they're both true at the same time. And the church theology and our existence is full of paradoxes. Uh, is the kingdom now or is it for later? Was Jesus human or was he divine? And, and so our theology says it's both now and later, the kingdom. And Jesus was both fully God and fully man. But then you go, you, well, how can, if God Almighty squeezed himself into a human being, doesn't his eternality, his, his just being able to know everything, and he takes up residence on the inside of Jesus, and, and, and he's in Jesus, doesn't that huma the humanity just get completely absorbed by the divinity? It's the same way where the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. The glorious, infinite God, infinitely creative, has no lack, has absolutely no need. He, he, he knows everything. He can be everywhere, but He takes up residence inside of you. And He does it in such a way that He allows for your humanity. You could still make choices. That blows my mind. We're stuck in some paradoxes. Was the Bible written by human authors or was it written by the Holy Spirit? Are we saved or made holy by faith alone or by the works that proceed from faith? So there are a lot of paradoxes. And, and in addition to paradoxes, there are mysteries. 19 times in the New Testament, uh, Paul speaks about mysteries, not just Paul, but John speaks about mysteries and Peter. So a mystery is something that's difficult or impossible to explain. The incarnation of Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's one body between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all part of one body. Uh, Israel is gonna be blinded for a while to the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. Uh, the church is Jesus' bride. These are all considered to be mysteries in the scriptures. And God set it up this way. He set us up to live in the tension of paradoxes and mysteries because when he set it up this way, he left us both incredibly secure in his love and incredibly dependent on his spirit to lead us. There's so many things that we don't yet understand and there are so many things that are clearly stated in scriptures that many of us haven't yet personally experienced. But we believe in them with all of our hearts. Some of us have seen little bits and pieces of it. Healing, for example. I've seen some glorious, miraculous, supernatural healings, and I've also had a lot of pain and wept at, at, at when, when it didn't come true. But my confidence and my security are in Jesus Christ, not in the answers I currently have, but there are a lot of things that I'm discovering I'm needing to be silent about while I seek the Lord for, for, for His wisdom on this subject. Too often in the church, we have this penchant, we have this desire to want to stand up and provide answers for people because Jesus is the answer after all anyway. But so many times we want to stand up and with a, just we are quick on the draw and easy to shoot barrels out at the world like this is the answer and 
Too few times we have a sense of humility about us, a sense of uh, just being prudent and listening to the Lord. This uh, is modeled for us by Jesus, but if we're not careful, our modern penchant for supplying answers for everything will create a smaller, man-formulated version of the gospel. Everything neatly explained and positioned, there is no awe, no wonder, all the paradoxes eliminated, all the mysteries explained, this is the way it works. And any time I come to a place where I see people doing that, I go, oh, that is too small a theology for me. Because the theology and the God that I know leaves you in awe and wonder. Like Job said, 400 questions in the book of Job, no answers, but he said, I thought I knew you, but then I saw you, and now I don't need any answers because I met the one that changed my life. And I think part of the way God set up this, work, this uh, life that we're called to live, this, we live out a life of faith, and God wants every single step that we take to be a step of faith, not to be a step that we see everything. For now we know in part, and we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see Him face to face, and it's going to be glorious. So in the meantime, we walk with every single step is a step of faith. And so the moment people have this whole thing neatly packaged up and it does not require faith makes me very nervous. Am I preaching to anybody yet? Is it making sense? I think we should be more prone to humility than arrogance. I think we should be a little more humble. We should speak, uh, many times we speak when listening is more appropriate. And we teach when we should be learning. And being the first to explain when we should be the first to seeking to understand. I think our gospel is best attended with awe and humility, with seeking and asking and knocking and that constant place of us constantly asking and constantly being in need of being led by the Spirit of God. Almost every time you see the disciples act without listening to Jesus, he has to fix it or correct them or use the teaching moment. Oh, no, no, Jesus is too busy when the kids come. Jesus says, what are you guys doing? Stop that, come out. Let me bless the kids. Almost every time. We are called to live a lifestyle of asking and seeking and knocking. So I wanna just say, when Jesus said ask and seek and knock in Matthew, he used it, it's it, it's a present participle. It means ask and keep on asking. It is always, while it's currently now in this moment, it's always appropriate to be asking and seeking and knocking. Dalvin in his book of free said, in some cases we learn more by looking for the answers to a question and not finding them than we do from learning the answer itself. There is a nobility in the, in the questioning. Now, John Fisher wrote a book called True Believers Ask Why many years ago, and this is what he said. A thing becomes an idol when it's placed before or in the place of the living God. The idol can be anything, a piece of wood, the sun, the Bible, a person, or a system of answers that explains reality sufficiently for one's own experiences. To come to God seeking anything but himself is to come with insufficient need. When answers are idols, God is irrelevant. Jesus modeled this for us when they, when they brought a woman to him who was caught in adultery in John 8. And the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus. So they bring this woman who's clearly embarrassed and they make her stand publicly in front of everybody. 
Where is the man she was committing adultery with? Because they were both supposed to be stoned. This is one of the biggies. This is one of the big 10 commandments that you're not allowed to break. You shall not commit adultery. And she's been caught in the act and they bring her and they don't bring the guy and they make her stand publicly. And then they say to Jesus, Jesus, should we stone her or not? Now this is a trap they're trying to set for him because the Romans had said, you're not allowed to just go and kill people according to your law. We have to be the ones, you have to come to us for judgment. So if Jesus says, yes, stone her, then they say, well, the Romans, they go to Rome and they say, look, this guy incited it. And if Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then they go, but Moses' law requires it. So they're trying to trap Jesus and they, and they come. Now, most people, I, can I just venture to say that if this was today in the church, we would be very quick with the answer. Oh, absolutely stone her. Because it's very clear in the word. Very clear. She should be stoned. And you know what Jesus does? They ask him, should we stone her? And Jesus bends down and begins writing in the sand. Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him. They were shouting questions at Jesus and he was writing in the sand. You know, uh, Greg, the law, the Torah, which Jesus was under, was very clear about this. Why did Jesus pause before he gave an answer? What do you say, Jesus? Come on, Jesus, you're supposed to be the rabbi. Come on, tell us. Jesus is writing this. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And then he straightens up and you know the story. My point is, there can be a little bit of a pause between the stimulus and the response. Because that's fundamentally the proof of maturity. The ability to pause between stimulus and response. That, that ability in us to go, you know what? I, I'm pretty sure I know. Just give me a second. I'm just going to doodle for a while. Um, Father, Holy Spirit, would you teach me? What do you want me to say? John Fisher again. To read, to read the Gospels is to find the Son of Man free with his questions and careful with his answers. The Gospel reads like a riddle. No one teaching today speaks like Jesus. Jesus always seemed to send people away scratching their heads, even his disciples. He was not a man with easy answers. He was not a seminar leader. He never gave a three-point message. His sermons didn't fall into an easily into an outline. Jesus spoke in a way that demanded participatory listening. He did not go the distance to communicate with his hearers. He went so far but no further, requiring an effort on the part of the listener to meet him. His favorite phrase when speaking in public message was, he who has ears, let him hear. Hear, he used it as an activity something that people do with their ears, but not necessarily everyone. Apparently, a person can have ears and not hear. And in such a case, Jesus is not going to go the extra mile to get that individual's attention. But ears are for hearing, and if there ever was a time for those marvelous instruments to be put to their designated function, it was when the Son of God was speaking. So let me take you through just a few examples of this, because I want you to see they asked him a question, and he asked them a question back. Or he answered in such a way that now had two questions. What is my first question's answer? And secondly, what does your answer to my question mean? Right, they were stuck. Here we go. Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
Are you the coming one or should we look for another? The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That was his answer. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Which one of you, if you have a sheep that falls into a hole, a pit on the Sabbath, will lay hand and lift it out? Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? Why do you transgress the commandments of God? Because of your tradition. Why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Have you ever read what David did when he ate bread? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Can I just stop? If somebody came up to me and just asked me that question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? We go, this is what I've been praying. This is my moment. <laughs> Jesus says, what's written in the world? What do you think? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Who made me the judge or arbiter over you? Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Teacher, we know that you are true, that you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why are you trying to trap me? By what authority are you doing these things? The baptism of John. Where was it from? From God or from men? How can these things be? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Pilate, what is truth? Jesus, no answer. <laughs> Prophesy, who hit you, son of man? No answer. You want to believe Jesus could have answered that question? Who just hit you? Oh, that was Bartholomew. <laughs> he could have done it. Eli Weasel from the book Night. After that day, I saw him often, and he explained to me with great insistence that every question possessed a power that did not lie in its answer. So let's talk about truth intention. Let's talk about this reality that there are, there are paradoxes and there are, there are mysteries and that whenever we come across a truth, we must come to that truth and we must understand the tension that is inherent in it. Excuse me, let me just bring my truth. This is a truth detector. Truth intention, when we learn and we hear something new, it doesn't mean that we throw out everything else that we know about truth, uh, but we add that truth and it adds, comes into a tension. There is a specific truth that I'm going to fix and, and, it's, and it's held in tension by a lot of other truth. What tends to happen to us when we're taught by the Holy Spirit that whatever He says is the foremost focus of our lives, so the Holy Spirit starts to push you in a direction because He wants to teach you about that specific truth. It's almost like the books in the library and that you're standing there and there's, there's a thousand, 10,000 books and the Holy Spirit brings a specific focus. He, as it were, lifts one of the books out of the library, brings it into your in front of you because he's wanting to teach you about a specific thing. Maybe it's his heart for his people or the, the doctrine of the goodness of God or, or healing for your body and spirit or how to be a wise parent or whatever the thing is that the Holy Spirit's trying to 
enrich your life with. And he brings that into focus and it's almost like that book comes out of the library and it fills your vision and that's all you typically see. And and because the Holy Spirit's trying to teach you something here. And so effectively you're imbalanced, but because it's the Holy Spirit who's got his hand on your life, he's wanting to teach you about this truth over here. And the moment, the moment he, he takes that book and you've learned it and he puts it back, you suddenly see the whole library and it all comes back into perspective. But for that moment you were reading that book, that's all you were focused on. That's the thing that you saw. But we need to keep in the back of our heads that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and the Word of God is His sword and so I need to seek Him. That's exceptionally vital. Now all forward progress is going to be imbalanced by definition. For there to be movement in a specific direction, force in that direction has to be applied. Does that make sense? Because perfect balance means we're perfectly still. So when the Holy Spirit wants to take from where I am into a specific direction, He applies a force and then I start to move in that direction. But that by definition is imbalanced. And so I've got to let the Holy Spirit's whisper on the inside of me lead me and I start to go with Him and I start to cooperate with Him and He will guide me into all truth. This is what Jesus said. The moment I forsake my dependence on the Holy Spirit and I, and I, and I say, well, I don't believe in that He can do that and I, I set that theology aside, I'm now at the mercy of whatever particular brand of theology, whatever yoke a particular denomination or church wants to put on me, and now I have to listen to them, and they have their particular brand of this is absolute truth, and I have to squeeze myself into their mold, and whatever their mold, wherever their mold fits in the scheme of things, I have to fit into that, right? Now we know from, from Jesus' encounter with the devil that the devil also likes to use scripture, the word of God in the mouth of the father of lies. Can you imagine a worse reality? So we have to, this principle is played out when, when, you, when you interpret the scriptures. The basic fundamental principle of an interpretation of the scriptures is that we, we use scripture to interpret scripture. Now, some people go, but Greg, I know the truth and I'm absolutely going to stand on the truth. And this is right. We've got to be absolute. We've got to be dogmatic. And I go, that's wonderful. Being clear and uh, being definitive is admirable. But just make sure that you really are right before you charge. It's just plain wisdom. See, Paul said in Romans 10 that, th- that there is no more zealous group of people than the Jews. He says, I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Zeal that's not based on knowledge is unhelpful, and that's what Proverbs 19 says, desire or zeal without knowledge is not good. And how much more will hasty feet miss the way? Proverbs 18, the first one in a lawsuit seems right until someone else comes forward to cross-examine them. This is why you're innocent until found guilty because you have the right to face your accuser in court. You have the right to present your side of the story. There's not just one side of the story, there's two sides of the story and there's usually three or four sides of the story. Proverbs 18, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Ecclesiastes 7, it's not good to grasp the one and then let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. I didn't like that scripture for the longest time because I liked being an extremist. I used to gloss over that scripture. 
Ecclesiastes. Solomon in a bad mood. That's what that was to me. Ever heard the saying that a, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text? To pause before speaking, to ask and listen before preaching and teaching are appropriate things to do. Boldness is beautiful and conviction and faith always please God. But living and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit are more important than all of that. Truth intention will help us not be blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine. There's so many doctrines, there's so many things being blown this way and that. You should do this, you should do that, you should go there. And one of the hallmarks of a young believer is that they get blown back and forth by every new teaching because they don't have an established pattern of truth settled in their life. In Ephesians 5, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. And it says, just as a wife submits, uh, just as a, a woman submits to the Lord, she should submit to her own husband. And just as the church submits to Christ, a wife should submit to her husband in everything. That's just Ephesians 5. Colossians 3 says, submit yourself to your own husbands because this is the most fitting thing in the Lord. How about 1 Peter 5? says you should, be, you should submit yourself to your own husband and you should be like Sarah who called Abraham her Lord. Now I've done nothing but read scripture. Wives. And if we left it there, I've had friends in ministry who live here and with all deep conviction preach that with all of their heart. That a wife's role is to be three steps behind her husband and do whatever he says. And every man in that church goes, amen. Now I've done nothing but read to you scripture. But let me read to you the rest of the scripture. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Because no one ever hated their own body, but you feed and you care for it and you're gentle with it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them because this would be of no benefit for you. 1 Peter says, treat them with dignity and respect and pour out your life on her behalf. Treat her as a, an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Truth needs to be intention, friends, because I've heard a lot of people preach truth as my father said, half the truth is a lie. And I've heard a lot of people preach a lot of truth, have a lot of opinion, but it's not a balanced opinion. It's not intention. It's a truth. Oh, to be sure it's a truth. But truth that's not intention becomes an imbalanced truth that will do you damage. Proverbs 26. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or else you'll be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or else he will think himself wise. Which one is right? Well, I don't know. That pair of verses just says to me, if you come across a fool in his folly, you should just run, because there's nothing you can do. <laughs> a fool committed to his folly, there's nothing you can do that's going to work well for you. 
Do you understand? There are a few things that are in our scriptures that are a little bit truth and tension, and that's the way God wired it to be. A little bit of tension, a little bit of questioning, a little bit of wonder, a little bit of mystery drives us back to the Lord to say, Lord, I need your help, I need your wisdom. Could you show me what you want me to do right now? So let me talk about the weightier issues because Jesus, when he was talking about the law, he's talking to Pharisees who loved the law. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you pay a tithe of your mint and your anise and your cumin. They would be on the plate eating their lamb with a little mint sauce and then they would tithe the mint sauce. That part is dedicated to the Lord. Jesus said, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You tithe on the mint and the dill, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the Lord. Justice, mercy, faith, love. So let me talk about some of the weightier issues of this time and of our lives. Some of the things that I think are some of the key supports that will hold you in place. And then you can handle whatever comes. You won't be blown back and forth. Sure, there's gonna be somebody who comes and they're gifted and anointed and they're influential and, and they're gonna push you a little in a certain direction. But if you have some of the weightier issues settled in your heart, you don't get blown back and forth too much by the wind of the doctrine. Number one, fix your eyes on Jesus. Do not let anything take your eyes off Jesus. Do not let another issue, do not let another thing grab your attention and hold it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because when the distinction between what is primary and secondary vanishes, each assertion of the Bible must have an equal importance. The way you get baptized, the nature that the church should be governed, the forms that we use during worship, all of this becomes massively important. Well, if you don't have five songs in worship, I don't even think you're saved. Because, and that's where it goes. People start getting judgmental on, over other believers over an, a secondary issue, which has now become primary. Behind this failure to see that the Bible will always be interpreted by some governing principle, which for the discerning Christian will always be the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of your life. He must be the center of your view. You must set your mind on Him. You must set your gaze on Him. Make sure that your eyes constantly go back to Jesus. The people who have another issue, another agenda, another focus make me nervous. But Greg, aren't we supposed to have multiple? If Jesus calls you to it, then you should absolutely do whatever he's telling you to do, but your eyes are keeping to be on Jesus while you do what he tells you to do. Oh, 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 look at that part of the body over there. They're not doing what Jesus told me to do. Yeah, because they're part of the liver and you're part of the eye. And you, you're never gonna agree about what you're supposed to be doing. Oh, oh, you should be focusing more over there. Oh, and the, the liver shouts, you should be cleaning more blood over there. We're having a discussion. Oh, I'm perfectly right. 
One of the chief anchors that hold you in place is keep your eyes on Jesus. So I want to just counsel you. There are so many issues. There are so many theologies. There are so many passions right now screaming for your attention. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't take them off him. My eyes are ever on the Lord. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken, David said. Number two, another one of these keys is love God and your neighbors. <laughs> it's so amazing to me how people can forget the love of God. It somehow disappears in our theology. Matthew 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, Jesus said, is summed up in these two commands. Then in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just like I've loved you. And Paul said, forever loves has fulfilled the law in Romans 13. In Galatians 5, he said, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I could go, we could go through, this is, this is proof text after proof text after proof text all over the New Testament. This is one of the biggest single issues in your life. Oh, but, but what about eschatology? Are you pre-mill or post-mill? I don't care. I care about the fact that I'm supposed to love people. You're so knotted about pre-mill, post-mill that if, if you, people don't agree with you, well, I, I just don't think you're saved. No, you, 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 you're making a tiny little non-issue a massive issue in your life. Hello. Love God and love people. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Preach His gospel to everyone, everywhere. <laughs> there are two things that are called great the great commission and the great commandment they're called great because they're overarching because they are the weightier issues of Jesus theology you should keep your eyes fixed on Jesus you should love God with all your heart and love your neighbor just like you love yourself and you should preach this gospel everywhere to everyone in every way. I've become all things to all men so that I might save some of them, Paul said. So let me suggest this to you. If you would keep those three, just those three, there are a bunch, they're more weightier issues, but just those three, just narrow your field of focus to Jesus. Ask yourself in every situation, what's the most loving thing I could do? What's the most loving thing I can do to somebody who disagrees with me? Is it to beat them down? Is it to win the argument? Mockingly, with scorn, but win? No. What's the most loving thing I can do? Because the, the biggest, the weightiest issues in my life is that I should be learning to love God with everything inside of me and loving other people just like I love Him. And that loving, Jesus said, by this they're going to know that you're my disciples. They will know that you have been discipled by me if you love one another. If you don't love one another, there's no way to tell if you're His disciples. You may be somebody else's disciple. 
But if you want to be Jesus' disciple, that, that direct line discipleship is proven by how much you love. Ah, oh, but I won the theological debate. Irrelevant. I want to read to you just eight things because I, I came across this during this, the sermon. It, it, I knew it wouldn't fit, but this was written by Peter Moore. He wrote it uh, directly after 9-11. He was the dean of the Trinity Bible College. And he wrote, he said, there are eight things that, that earmark fundamentalists. He wasn't thinking about you or me. He was thinking at 9-11. This is what he said. Fundamentalists, they tend to reflect black and white thinking. They tend to have a fortress mentality. You're either with me or you're my enemy. They absolutize secondary issues. They're irrationally afraid of compromise. There's often a polarization on gender. Usually women are treated poorly. They tend to be highly selective in their approach to scholarship. The fundamentalist mind thinks that it's acceptable to impose its agenda on the world. But Jesus didn't say impose, he said preach, make the offer. And this mindset has a tendency towards legalism. Ultimately, you are supposed to be somebody who values and evaluates everything that's brought to you. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they tested the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true, Acts 17. 1 Corinthians 14, let the prophets prophesy and the rest of you weigh carefully what is being said. Even Paul the apostle was held to an account by the people who were listening to him to evaluate what he was saying, is that true? Even a prophetic utterance inspired by the Holy Spirit is supposed to be considered carefully by everybody who hears it. Nobody is free from truth being intention. And somebody, the next person who says to you, no, no, for, for, forget all that. This is the thing. Just automatically be nervous of them. From, from my pastor's heart to yours. You have every right to measure truth in a matrix of tension. Let's pray together. Father, would you keep our eyes on your son Jesus? He is before all things and in him all things hold together. For all things were created by you, Lord, and for you. You are the darling of creation. You are the king of eternity. You're the prince of peace. You're the only high priest. You're the only sacrifice. You're the only creator. You're the only redeemer. You, Lord, are all that we need. So we fix our eyes on you and we'll do whatever you tell us. Right now, Lord, I break off any demanding lie that the enemies try to sow on people's minds. I break it off and say, no, set your people free, Lord, to hear your voice. And Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us how to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.